Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have to gather together in your name. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and that you have given us all that we need for life and for godliness. We pray that you would be with us now as we examine the psalm of confession and sorrow, that we would have a better understanding of our own sinfulness and what it means to be broken before you. I pray that you would give me the words to speak, that they would be the words that you would have that would come from your word and not from my own opinions or thoughts. We pray that each one of us would follow you as we go from this place. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of the most important things we can understand when we're looking at a passage of Scripture is the context involved. And so we'll be looking a little bit about the context around David, around the author of Psalm 51, before we get into the book itself. The first part of the context I want us to examine is the idea of the penitential psalms. These are uh, also called psalms of confession. Uh, These are songs of sorrow and regret that are used, uh, have been used for a a long time as memorized prayers for those who are seeking repentance. They were, uh, they are recorded confessions of the authors who are appealing to God's faithfulness and His mercy and love in order to gain forgiveness for their sin. There are seven such identified psalms, 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Of those seven, five are attributed directly to David. I think it's worth noting that the majority of them were uh, penned by the hand of David. It's interesting also to me that the other two have no author that is assigned to them. That's Psalm 102 and 130. The other five are all done with David in mind. Personally, I think this is one of the reasons that David is called a man after God's own heart. We can see that uh, you know it's, it's a lot more about David's perspective than about his performance, because clearly David did not have the best performance all of the time. The second uh, item of con- context that I want us to talk about is the perspective of David himself before we get into what, what did the author think, what was he like as he was there. Some may find it hard to, to grasp that David is called a man after God's own heart. This is a quote from Acts 13.22, which is then quoting 1 Samuel 13.14. Even when he has committed such heinous sins, how can he be called a man after God's own heart? But if we look at 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, it says the following. For David did what was right in the Lord's eyes and did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Again, we see that this is more about David's perspective than his performance, because he did sin, he did commit sin. And we'll see a little bit later three different aspects of why I believe his perspective uh, makes him a man after God's own heart. The first one of those uh, aspects is that he had faith in God. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Turn with me there if you would, please. And this is, I believe, the first time we really see a revelation of David's character. Many of you know the story. It's the story of David and Goliath. And so David goes to visit his brothers. Goliath is the champion of the Philistines. He has been taunting God. He's been taunting the Israelites for days now. And David comes, and this is his perspective. Let's look at verses 46 and 47. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, cut your head off, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know 
that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. David was much more concerned about Goliath's insults against God and Israel than he was against his own life. He was going to go up against this nine and a half foot tall guy, big old spear, you know, 100 pound spear. He didn't care. This guy is defying God. We need to make sure that, that this does not happen. We, don't let, we can't let this unchecked. Later on, we see David's patience in waiting for God's timing to be king. Uh, he had been anointed king uh, for a number of years before he even had a chance to do that. And yet, he was patient waiting for God's timing so that God would accomplish his plan in his time. The second aspect of David's perspective that I believe makes him a man after God's own heart is he loved God's law. Psalm 119 is interesting because it's a collection of acrostic poems, uh, 176 verses, very you know longest uh, chapter in the Bible. And every one of them, every section of eight verses starts with the same Hebrew letter. It's a, it's a beautiful acrostic poem all about the word of God and about his, his commands. There are some who um, do not uh, affirm that David was the author of Psalm 119. I personally think he was based on the writing style and some of the other things I've, I've researched. But even if not, we can still see the same idea in Psalm 19. Let's look at, at that real quickly. Psalm, one, Psalm 19, not 119. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, is, is attributed to David. And then we also see similar ideas of the care and the reverence for God's law. Beginning in verse 7 of Psalm 19. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts are right, of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, pure gold and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and there is great reward in keeping them. We see the reverence that David had for God's law, his perspective of seeing that God was righteous in all that he did and all that he commanded and all that he said. God was true and faithful. The final aspect I want to look at of David's perspective before we get into Psalm 51 is how he dealt with sin. For that, we need to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we'll look at a few different verses there. Second Samuel chapter 12 is where David is confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. When he is confronted in verse 13, David responds. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. And then Nathan went home. So the minute he is confronted with his sin, David confesses. He acknowledges, I have sinned before the Lord. I have done wrong. This is terrible. And judgment is pronounced. And I think it's interesting because David accepts that judgment. He doesn't fight God. He doesn't rail against God. He doesn't say, why would you do such a thing, God? There's, there's no, this isn't right. He does mourn and fast and pray for the life of his son. He is begging for the life of his child. And we'll see why in verse 22 of that chapter 12. 
His servants came and said, why are you doing this? You know, when, when the child was dying, you're fasting and praying, and now that he's actually dead, you get up, you wash your face, you get cleaned up, and you go eat a meal. Like, that doesn't make sense, David. Why are you doing this? And again, we see David's heart and his perspective. Verse 22, he answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will never return to me. Again, we see that David had the right perspective. He understood that there was a consequence for sin. And he accepted the punishment from God. But he still appealed to God's mercy, knowing that God is gracious. And he has seen in the Old Testament many times where people broke themselves before God, knelt down humbly, and God relented of the judgment he was going to put on them. You know, we see that uh, in the story of, of Jonah, where he went to Nineveh, and the entire city, God said, okay, three days, I'm going to wipe the city out. And everyone from the king on down, including the animals, was humbled, put on sackcloth and ashes, and God said, okay, I will stay my hand for now. Eventually, they were wiped out because of, they returned to their sin. But in that case, God was, just, was gracious in allowing them more time. I came across this quote from C.H. Spurgeon uh, as I was uh, doing some of my research. It says, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. And I believe we see that from David as we read through the various psalms he has penned. So let's go ahead and look at our main text for this morning, Psalm 51. This is a prayer of restoration by David. And again, this is, we know this from the title. If you look in your Bible, most of you will have a heading above it, you know, when he was confronted with um, his sin. And so we know exactly who it is and why it was written. Let's go ahead and look at the first five verses, which I've titled Sinning from Birth, to see how David responded when he was confronted with his sin. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant kindness a compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. In this first section, David acknowledges his specific sin in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah, as well as his own sinful nature, his own tendencies to commit sin. The first verse we see him, his first words are an appeal to God's character. It is always appropriate to proclaim God's character, not because God needs reminded that he is merciful, but sometimes we need to be reminded of that ourselves. We need to recognize our own position and our status before a holy and righteous God who cannot look upon sin. David brought him and said, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, take away my sin. Because it was nothing to do with David. There's no uh, comment there about anything David has done to earn this. It's completely reliant on God's compassion and his mercy. In the first two verses, we see that David uses a number of different words for cleaning. Again, it's poetry, and he's doing this, but it does have a purpose. And so in the, in the, the first verse, uh, he is asking God to blot out or to wipe away. It's the idea of taking something and cleaning it, you know, smoothing it side to side, wiping it down. 
uh, so that it removes anything that was showing there. Wipe away his rebellion. In verse 2, he has the, the word wash, or the idea of vigorous scrubbing, you know, manual washing of trying to get the dirt out of a, out of a piece of cloth. You know, some of you have little boys that run around and get grass stains. You know how hard it is to scrub. That's the idea of getting in like a bristle and just scrubbing really hard to get rid of those stains. The last word in verse 2 is the word cleanse, and this is more of purification, not necessarily of, of cleaning. Uh, think of like disinfectant type of a thing. You know, you're not cleaning dirt, you're not wiping grime and oil and, and, and gunk off of there. You're actually cleaning it to make it pure, uh, you know, antibacterial type of thing. So again, he uses all of these words, and all of those words are directed at God, a request for God to do the cleaning because David admits that he is not able to do it himself. He requires God to do that cleaning for him. In verses 3 through 5, David is admitting his own sinfulness. David here admits that he is not only sinned in this one instance, but he is guilty from his birth. The phrase that it talks about, I was sinful when my mother conceived me, that's not talking about his conception or his, his parents being sinful or anything like that. What that means is that as soon as he was conceived, he received a sin nature because he is a descendant of Adam, as we all are. So even from his birth, he is one who has been sinful because he is corrupted by his sin. He fully accepts that God is just any time that he judges sinful man. The statement in verse 4 is interesting. Um, against you and you alone I have sinned. Now, does anybody believe that there was only one person that was involved in that sin? No. Clearly, there were a number of other people who David sinned against. But again, we look at David's perspective. What was his perspective? He's looking at a holy, righteous, infinite God who created the universe. He says, when I look at the monstrous sin that I have committed against God, everything else pales in comparison. There's nothing. I might as well have not, not done anything else because you're the one who really matters. David needs to get right with God before anything else is done. His affront was to an eternal God who is infinitely good, and everything else pales in comparison to that fact. People did get hurt, and his son with Bathsheba died because of it. And you can read throughout the, the, uh, the book of the Kings and Chronicles, a number of people were upset because of what happened, and uh, even his one of his uh, main counselors actually conspired against him with his son Absalom to take the throne away from him because of that fact. So again, there were a number of other people hurt by this, but that again, that focus, that perspective is, God, I've sinned against you, and until I get that right, nobody else matters. I think it's important for us to understand the principle of James 1.15. It says, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Sin always brings death. It may not be immediate physical death, but there will be a killing of a relationship, a killing of your testimony, a killing of opportunities that you would have to serve the Lord. You know, there were times David wanted to build the temple, and God said, no, you've done too much violence in your life. I want someone who is a man of peace. Sometimes those sins that we commit will, will rob us of opportunities that we have to serve God. Sin always brings death, even if it's not immediate. The next section, verses 6 through 12, I've titled Scouring from Sin. Uh, again, we have another list of many cleaning words that are used here, as well as a new one that he introduces in verse 7. 
Let's read verses 6 through 12 as we're coming through, through that passage. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Because of the enemy's voice, because of the pressure... What? I'm sorry. Too many pages, my bad. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. God created a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. And give me a willing spirit. The section here, David, again, uses, like I said, multiple different cleaning words. But he uses a new one, purge or purify. What's interesting is I was looking at this. The root of that word is to miss. And many times the, that root word is used to describe sin itself. But in this instance and a few others, it's actually used as the idea of purging sin or, or getting rid of sin, making it go away. Hyssop was a plant that was used in the uh, ritual purification, the ceremonial purification under the law. Uh, if you go back and you look at uh, when the, the book of the law and the temple and the tabernacle were first dedicated, he used hyssop to sprinkle the blood. In many cases, he would sprinkle the water upon the Levites in order to purify them. So David is appealing to this spiritual, um, uh, to the ceremonial cleaning in the Old Testament in order to ask God for, for spiritual cleaning in this area. Again, he's using the symbology of God's own law, of God's own words, to show that he needs to be cleaned and purified and rededicated, ceremonially set apart. He repeats the idea again that God is the only one who can clean him from his sin. I love the phrase in verse 8 where it says, Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. This is an implication that God is the one who is afflicting David that God is the one who has put pressure on him and, and caused him to do this. Similar to the poetry that we find in Psalm 32, Psalm 32 is uh, some of the verses we read, verses 3 and 5. It says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. So it seems that God was afflicting him in some way, that, um, that God was, was persecuting him, if you will, in a certain way. Which brings up an interesting question is how do we tell the difference between the accusations of guilt from the enemy of our soul and the conviction of, the, of guilt from the Holy Spirit. Um, so in, in that way, uh, because guilt, there's a biblical guilt which leads to repentance and there is a, a demonic guilt which causes us to despair. I came across this quote when I was uh, doing some of my research when R.C. Sproul was uh, teaching on guilt and forgiveness. Um, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says at the same time that he tells us we are guilty... He assures us that we are forgiven. I think there's a, a next slide up there. Um, should be a quote on there. And the next one, sorry. There we go. So the, the difference between um, the, the guilt 
given by Satan and the guilt given by the Holy Spirit is that Satan accuses us to destroy us. He accuses us to cause us to be ineffective in our ministry, to cause us to despair of God's holiness and his, his mercy. The Holy Spirit accuses us to redeem us, to bring us back to himself. So that's why David says in Psalm 51, verse 8, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice because God is dealing with him, the one that he loves, God chastens. You know, it says in Proverbs that the one who spares the rod hates his son. Discipline is not something that we enjoy, but it is something that is necessary to bring us back to God. And that's why he says, the bones that you have crushed should rejoice because that means that God is still dealing with him as with a son. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says that no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, it's not something that we enjoy in the time, but it is something that can bring joy to us, that can bring redemption and restoration to God. We should rejoice that God is afflicting us instead of allowing us to wallow in our own sin or self-pity. The fact that God is bringing us to himself should encourage every one of us. Verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 51. David again uh, recognizes that his own heart is sinful and desperately wicked. The only remedy is for God himself to create a new heart with him. So he's requesting God to create a clean heart, to do a creative work, to change the heart that he has. And this is not something that was unknown in the Old Testament because there are many times where God talked through his prophets and he said, I will take the heart of stone that is in you and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is willing to serve me. So God had already promised his people that he would give them a new heart and a heart that would be devoted in service to them. So David is asking again that God would fulfill his promises, that God would follow through with his word that he has given in this instance to himself personally because he needs that new heart. A new, a renewing a steadfast spirit. He recognizes that God has every right to banish him from his presence. He doesn't say, you better not do that. He says, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I want us to take special note of verse 12 and read exactly what it says. It does not stay, say, restore your salvation to me. David hadn't lost his salvation. We believe that the Bible teaches eternal security, that once you're saved, you're 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 kept by the power of Christ. Jesus said that no one can take them out of my Father's hand. So it wasn't that his salvation was in jeopardy. It was the joy. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. Give me a willing spirit. God's salvation is not fickle and it is not dependent on us at all. It is dependent solely upon him. Because God does not change, neither do his promises. But what David is saying is that the relationship has suffered. The joy is gone because he has turned away from God. We should not expect to experience the joy of the Lord if we are willfully living in sin. The final section of Psalm 51, I've given the title of Serving from Gratefulness. Once the issue of sin and sanctification has been dealt with, the only proper response is service. David ends the psalm with a series of verses detailing his intentions to serve God as soon as the issue of his sin has been dealt with. Let's look at verses 13 through the end of the chapter. 
Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. God is perfectly fine with sacrifices and offerings to him, but he wants them done out of the right heart. The first service that David is willing to do is to schooling schooling the rebellious. It says in verse 13, he commits to bringing other rebellious souls back to God. He has personally experienced the departure of the joy of his salvation. He has experienced what it means to deny God and to disobey him. And what he wants to do is to show others that they don't have to disobey, and if they do, that God is merciful and willing to bring them back to him. The second service he is offering is singing of God's praises. We see this in verses 14 through 15. It's important to remember that David wrote a a large number of the Psalms. He was a a warrior poet. He was a man of action. But he was also a man of, of very deep thought and character. He's committing to singing songs of praise to God because God is the only one who is worthy to be praised. And I believe that's the only proper response when we recognize our own sin and experience the cleansing power of God, we should shout his praise to anyone who will listen, and even to those who won't. Finally, the last act of service that David is offering is sacrificing for God's pleasure. Verses 16 through 19. David does not make the same mistake that many people do. That followed in the idea of pagan worship, that there's something wrong and I need to appease the gods by giving the right number of sacrifices, the right kind of sacrifices, in the right order, the right time, the right day, or whatever it is. David doesn't do that. He doesn't make any promises in haste. Say, you know, God, if you do this, I will, you know, I'll build the biggest thing there ever is. He's fully willing to do all of those things, but he recognizes that God doesn't want to sacrifice. That's not his point. God doesn't need to eat a cow. He doesn't need to eat a bull. He doesn't need to eat a goat. He doesn't need to drink the blood of all of these things. He's not doing it for sustenance. It's not a necessity for him. What God wants is a broken spirit, someone who comes humbly before him, acknowledging who he is and who we are in relation to that. We see in the closing verses that God is pleased with sacrifices, but only after those only from those who are righteous before him. And that righteousness can only come from those who humbly seek the salvation that he offers. I found this quote from C.H. Spurgeon in his Treasury of David commentary. It says, A broken heart is an expression implying deep sorrow, embittering the very life. It carries in it the idea of all but killing anguish in that region which is so vital as to be the very source of life. So excellent is a spirit humbled and mourning for sin that it is not only a sacrifice, but it is a plurality of excellences.
what he's saying here is that that is more pleasing to God than to mount up numbers of sacrifice. What did Samuel say to, to Saul? To obey God is better than to sacrifice. God would rather have Saul obey his words than to offer thousands of cows and all the cattle that he had because he had told him specifically not to do those things, to destroy all of them. So disobedience to God is not washed away by extra sacrifices, and David recognizes that fact here in these verses. He says, you do not want to sacrifice, or I would give it willingly. The sacrifice that is acceptable to him is a broken spirit. So what does that mean for us? What should our response be to this type of psalm? You know, we could look at any number of different ideas of what it, what it could mean. You know, how, how are we supposed to repent? How are we supposed to react once we repented? But I think our response should be that knowing there is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God and it's not an object. God doesn't want our money. He doesn't need our time, need anything. But he wants our attitudes of brokenness and thankfulness. Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 28, 13. And it is a verse that we had read during the response of readings. As I was preparing for uh, this message, I uh, was doing one of my daily readings. I have uh, Someone gave me a, a book of daily readings from C.H. Spurgeon. It's called The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. And in one of those, uh, uh, Proverbs 28.13 was the, the verse reading, and then it had the following quote, which we'll read after we read the verse. Proverbs 28.13 20, says, The one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. The opening paragraph after this reading says, Here is the way of mercy for a guilty and repenting sinner. He must cease from the habit of covering sin. This is attempted by falsehood, which denies sin, by hypocrisy, which conceals it, by boasting, which justifies it, and by loud profession, which tries to make amends for it. The sinner's business is to confess and forsake. The two must go together. And if you watch the news at all, you've probably seen every one of those different things, justifying sin, boasting about sin, uh, making amends for it, you know, trying to do these things. But that is not what God has called us to do in here. It says multiple times we need to confess our sins. We need to repent of them. Brokenness, the first attitude that we need to offer as a sacrifice to God, requires humility. If we are going to offer a sacrifice as we should, we need to be humble. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, speak about humbling ourselves before God. In here, James is quoting from Proverbs 3.34 to tell us that we should humble ourselves. Verse 6, uh, verse six of chapter 4 says, But he gives greater grace, therefore he says... God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning, and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
We are to experience the joy of the Lord in our lives, but not when we have unconfessed sin in it. We need to deal with the issue of sin first, and then we can experience the joy. We must humble ourselves before him, mourning and weeping over our sin. Jesus had a similar idea in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. He's talking to the Pharisees. This is when he is eating at the home of Matthew, Levi. And they came in and uh, asked him, Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And his response to them in verse 13 says, Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He says, For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. His purpose in coming was to call those who were willing to admit their own sinfulness. The self-righteous don't see the need for repentance. That's what he's saying here. You need to be humble and accept that you need a Savior. If you don't accept that, then the gospel is meaningless. In one of my daily readings, uh, I came across this verse in Isaiah, uh, verses I should say, in Isaiah chapter 50. And I thought it was interesting, um, the parallel there. Isaiah 50 verses 10 through 11 says, Who among you fears the Lord, listening to the voice of his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh. Let him lean on his God. Look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands. Walk in the light of your fire and in the firebrands you have lit. This is what you will get from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. Interesting parallel in Isaiah where it talks about the people that are in darkness trying to make their own light. God said the only thing you're going to get is torment. But if you look to Yahweh, he will provide all the light you need. The same idea applies in salvation. We cannot look to ourselves to save ourselves. We must submit to God because the only thing that comes of us seeking to support ourselves is torment. The second aspect of the broken attitude is that it is required for redemption. It requires humility to have it, but it is also something that is required for redemption. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. I think it's interesting that the message of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, what was his first message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went around preaching repentance to people, which we'll look at in the next verse. Here's two of his disciples in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, preaching repentance. 319 says, Therefore repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That sounds very similar to what we've just been reading in Psalm 51 and other places. They're teaching them repentance. You must repent. The repentance is what brings you to the joy of the Lord. Now, again, that's not something that's saying that repentance is a work of salvation, that you know it's, it's something you have to do. But repentance is simply an attitude, a mindset of changing the idea of how we see God and how we see ourselves. We need to admit the idea of confession is admitting that what we're doing is wrong, you know, agreeing with God that his standard is right and our behavior is not. We see Jesus telling the same type of thing in Luke 13, 
verses 3 and 5. Again, Luke is, uh, or I'm sorry, Jesus is here in Luke is talking to the Pharisees and um, others who are in there. And they're talking about, you know, well, these people die. You know, Pilate killed these Galileans and he mixed their blood in with the sacrifices. And Jesus responds to them, uh, beginning in verse 2. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed. Do you think that they were more sinful than all the people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. The mistake that they were making was that they were comparing themselves to other people. Said, so, well, you know, clearly those people had sinned because, you know, they had, they had this horrible thing happen to them. And Jesus said, no. Were, were they any less righteous than the other people who survived? He said, no. You need to repent. Everyone needs to repent. It is a personal choice that each one of you have to make. Instead of seeing sin from God's perspective, they were comparing themselves to others. And we like to do that as humans. Well, I'm not as bad as this other person. I've not killed anyone. Yeah, but you've offended a holy God. The second attitude we need to have once we've been broken, once God has cleansed our sin, is thankfulness. Turn with me to Psalm 138, if you would. Psalm 138 is a psalm of David. And we see a thankful heart here from David. It says, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing your praise before the heavenly beings. I will bow down towards your holy temple. And give thanks to your name for your constant love and truth. You have exalted your name and your promise above everything else. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased strength within me. If you read down through the rest of those verses, he continues to talk about God's faithfulness, God's character. He affirms God's faithful love and his integrity throughout that psalm. It is always appropriate to proclaim the character of God. That is something that should be an outflow of the thankfulness we experience when we realize our own sinfulness and what it means for God's forgiveness. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, if you would. Hebrews 13, look at a New Testament version of that, that concept. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Again, praising God, proclaiming who he is and what he has done. We should be thankful for his provision and protection even in times when he is testing us. The sacrifice he desires, here it says, is to do good and to proclaim his name, to give him the glory. Again, that's after we have dealt with the issue of sin. Then we can experience the joy of the Lord. We can offer service to him and be useful for his service. In conclusion, I'd like us to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Look at those words and ponder them. 
Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and opened to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is nothing hidden from God. He is already aware of our sin and sinfulness. What he desires is for us to acknowledge them and to turn to him in repentance. Let us consider this as we move into a time of communion, that we think about our own sinfulness, the forgiveness that we need from God, and the thankfulness that we can offer as a sacrifice to him because of his great love for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have had in your word. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf to pay the debt that we owed that we could not pay. We thank you for your love and your provision, your protection over us. We thank you for your discipline to bring us back to you. We thank you that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding love because you do not deal with us as our sins deserve or you would obliterate every one of us from the planet. Lord, we thank you that you are merciful beyond anything that we can understand or imagine the love that you have for us even when we are in open rebellion against you. You demonstrated your love toward us. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We pray that that would motivate each one of us to an attitude of brokenness, to an attitude of thankfulness, and that we would serve you as we go from here this day. We ask these things in Jesus' name.